Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. If you've been following the show from the beginning, which I know at least a few people have, then you'll know a topic I've covered a lot on it is free will. And the episodes that I've done on free will have been some of the most popular ones um, in the whole podcast's history. One thing I was thinking about in preparation for this interview is the people I've had on to discuss it, so particularly uh, Greg Caruso or Aaron from the Embrace the Void podcast, have taken um, a very sceptical view of free will. In other words, it's something that we don't have, and it's important and ethically salient that we don't have it. And that generally matches my thinking on it, And so I was really pleased to get the opportunity recently to sit down with a very distinguished philosopher, Alfred Milley, um, who takes a much more open-minded, although, as you'll see, non-dogmatic approach to free will. Um, He's just written a book, Free Will, an Opinionated Guide, in which he tries to give an overview of the sorts of arguments and examples that philosophers think about in this area, but also give his own view, which is that both a a libertarian conception of free will and a compatibilist conception of free will are intellectually viable projects. In this conversation, we'll start with just a sort of overview of some of the problems and debates that philosophers think about. And then, you know, as I usually do interviews, I'll sort of introduce some of my own views and um, have a bit of back and forth. And what we end up with is a sort of general high-level conversation about the different types of ideas that you can have about free will and why we might think those are important. And I really enjoyed this conversation. This was um, just a very pleasant, um, but really interesting and in-depth, but hopefully still pretty accessible, um, you know, discussion. I don't think there's anything in here that assumes prior knowledge on the audience's part. So I found this really enjoyable to do, and I hope you find it interesting to listen to. Um, Let's just get straight to it, because I think we set up the topics pretty well in the interview itself. Um, Apart from to say, as always, I don't do any sponsorship or advertisements on this show. That's a personal thing. I think they spoil podcasts. I know that's something a lot of the audience agrees with. Um, So to cover all of the costs associated with the show, I rely on people giving me money on Patreon. So it's a trade-off. Instead of halfway through the show, me interrupting it to try and sell you underwear, I annoy you at the beginning by asking you to give me money on Patreon. I'm more comfortable with it that way. And if you are already giving money on Patreon, you are amazing. You are making it possible for all of my website and streaming hosting fees to be paid. So thank you so much for that. You're enabling this product to go out for free and advertisement free to thousands and sometimes even tens of thousands of people. So you're awesome. Please keep doing that. And if you enjoy the show, if you get to the end of this interview and think this sort of content is worth a dollar or two, or a pound or two, I'm back in the UK now, uh, of your money. If it has the same value to you as a pricey cup of coffee at a high-end store, or not even that, pricey coffees can be like five pounds these days, which is... (sighs) whatever. Um, Then consider sponsoring it on that basis, you know. If these episodes of the podcast give you as much enjoyment as a medium-priced cup of coffee... Um, please consider uh, chipping in. That would be terrific. Um, Yep, let's get straight to it apart from that. Thank you for joining us. This is Free Will Revisited with Alfred Milley.
Okay, I am joined today by Professor Alfred Mealy. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the Political Philosophy Podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So we're going to do free will today. Um, is this your central academic interest? Uh, it's one of them, uh, certainly. And how did you, you've been in charge of a pretty big project to do with this. Do you want to talk us, give us like maybe just a very brief guide to um, the work you've done on this and um, what sort of led you to writing this book, Free Will, An Opinionated Guide? Okay, yeah, about the uh, project. It was called the Big Questions in Free Will Project. It started in 2010, uh, ran into 2014. It was funded by the John Templeton Foundation. It was about uh, four and a half million dollars. And uh, what we did was to combine uh, neuroscientists, social and cognitive psychologists and philosophers into teams. They uh, applied for grant money uh, from me. And uh, I had a panel of experts making decisions and uh, they did a lot of uh, great work together. Also in that one, there was a uh, theology wing too. It was much smaller and it addressed questions uh, about divine freedom and human freedom relative to divine foreknowledge and, and things of that sort. It was a really nice project. Um, and just as it was about to end, Templeton asked me to direct another project, a related one, and it was called The uh, Philosophy and Science of Self-Control. And that run, ran from 2014 into 2017. And uh, that was also about a four and a half million dollar project. Um, so about this book in particular, um, in 2014, a book of mine on free will and science was published by Oxford, and it was written for a general audience. And it sold uh, very well and has been translated into several languages, maybe five. I, I never keep track of these things. And so Oxford asked me to do another book on free will for a general audience, but this time to focus on philosophical issues. And that's what this book is, this new book, Free Will and Opinionated Guide. That was their title. It does. Um, it does what it says. I've just finished it now, but um, it does what it says on the tin. It's an overview of like the basic arguments, and you you lay them all out, but you give your own your own position as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what happens. Um, so really, what I'm trying to do is to help readers to think for themselves about uh, free will. I'm a believer in free will and autonomy and so on, and I want the readers to be autonomous too. Uh, but I do try to nudge them in my direction. My own uh, view on free will is, well, we could say peculiar. Mm -hmm. um, because much, well, in fact, most of the literature, philosophical literature on free will is about a debate between what we call compatibilists and incompatibilists. Mm -hmm. And I'll come back to that later. And I'm always neutral on the, on the biggest debate in the free will literature. What I try to do is to develop positive views uh, for both sides. Now, um, about compatibilism and incompatibilism, what I do in this book in order to avoid biasing people more than necessary is to discuss those two main views for quite a while without introducing the main terminology. Mm. And the reason for that is at the heart of the dispute between compatibilists and incompatibilists is what philosophers call determinism. Mm -hmm. and, and not everybody uses the word determinism in the same way, that's for sure. But in the free will and moral responsibility literature, there's a, a generally accepted understanding of what determinism is. And it's the thesis that a complete description of the universe at any point in time together with a complete list of the laws of nature would entail uh, all other truths about the universe, including all the truths about what we will ever do. One way to get people to picture this is you could imagine uh, 
a super being with a brain the size of Neptune, say. Mm-hmm. And it knows all the laws of nature and it knows what the universe was like in every detail 10 million years ago. And from that knowledge, it deduces uh, infallibly all other truths about the universe, including truths about what we're going to do. Okay, now we have that in place. And compatibilists say the universe can be like that and there can be in it free human beings, human beings with free will, human beings who act freely. And the incompatibilist says, no way. You know, if the universe is like that, then everything that happens is just the unfolding of the initial conditions, and so there's no free will. That's the issue that I'm neutral on. And some people think, you know, how could you be neutral on that and write so much about uh, free will? Well, it's not so hard, really. So um, one thing you'd want to know is, what conditions would compatibilists offer as sufficient for, say, deciding freely? Deciding or choosing is really central to the free will literature. And uh, what I try to do is to come up with a plausible set of uh, sufficient conditions for compatibilists. This is in my own work where I do it, you know, at length. In the book, I do nudge people in that direction. But also for the incompatibilists who believe in free will, I give a set of sufficient conditions that would be plausible from that perspective. And these two different sets of conditions are similar. They differ in that the incompatibilist set includes what I call in this book, uh, deep openness. And deep openness you would have if your universe is such that although at a given time you chose to do A, If you were to roll back time, let's say, and then roll it forward again and not change anything all the way up to the moment of choice or decision, um, you could choose differently or decide differently. If your universe is like that, then you satisfy at least one necessary condition according to incompatibilists uh, for free will. Um, Oh, yeah. And that's what the cover of the book is about in a way. So. One way to picture this deep openness is as follows. So imagine that uh, an indeterministic brain works like this. Uh, You're uncertain about what to do, and you start thinking about what to do. And once you start, a little neural ball in your head drops onto a neural roulette wheel in your head, and it bounces around. And different segments of the roulette wheel Uh, are identical really with different options that you might choose. And then the ball's landing in a certain segment is you're choosing that option. So imagine that in in the actual world. Let's have a concrete example just to make it simpler. And let's have a really simple one to begin with. So I'm walking in the woods and I come to a fork in the trail and I can go left, I can go right, I can turn around and go backward. Uh, I can sit and think and stop. Um, And so I've got these options. The wheel starts spinning, the ball starts bouncing, and it lands in the go left segment. Um, So I decide to go left. Now, what the, we call these people libertarians. Libertarians are people who say uh, determinism is incompatible with free will and we have free will. So determinism is false then. So um, the libertarian says, uh, well, if I'm going to have decided freely, then the world and my head and everything needs to be such that at that very time, the ball could have landed you know, somewhere else on the wheel, in which case I would have decided something else. So they require this um, for free will. It raises problems about luck that I can get into later but I have the feeling that I've gone on maybe <laughs> longer than I should have. So, uh, so back, back to you. So let's review. You start by distinguishing two conceptions of what would what would free will look like, what would be you know sufficient conditions of it, um, which you call a mixed versus a straight conception. 
a straight conception is what's going to tie up ultimately with the compatibilist view, which is a conception that can be true whether or not determinism is, which is to say, I don't know, I'm just sort of going with what compatibilists usually say here, but something to the effect of, look, no one's got a gun to your head. That decision really did occur in your brain. It, you, you know, really did have the consequences that you thought it was going to have. Um, irrespective of if you reround the universe, you'd have come to the same decision or not. There is some meaningful sense in which someone has a choice here. That's a straight conception, which is sort of, I don't think anyone disputes that something like that is happening. A mixed conception, just using your terminology, is say that, but also there really is this libertarian thing where we really are getting in the chain of causality in some way. And it is actually us. We're not just describing a process. Um, so those are, I mean, you've covered our main terms, right? Compatibilism, incompatibilism, and um, determinism. Um, I'll, I'll give you my opinion. Um, and maybe we can exchange views, but just as a, not having studied this in any great depth, but more of just a gut reaction. I've always been a bit agnostic, not between compatibilism and incompatibilism, but between free will scepticism and some version of compatibilism, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I could see a moral universe existing in which, you know, we're just consequentialists of some kind. And, um, you know, there's no real deep moral responsibility, but it makes sense to try and do things to avoid hurting people and so on and so forth. I can also see a universe in which the rhetoric of free will is useful as a sort of retroactive condemnation or retroactive appeal to say you really shouldn't be doing things like that, you know, or you really should be doing things like that. I have trouble with the libertarian versions in a way that you don't, but that's that's my own agnosticism, and maybe we can get into that. Okay, yeah. Let's so let's talk about the libertarian uh, position. Now there are different kinds of libertarians, and uh, you know I talk about that in this book too. So there are libertarians who think that you need something called agent uh, causation in order to have free will. Um, So I should explain what agent causation is. So you could think about causation as a relation between two things. There's sort of the input thing and the output thing. Mm -hmm. And picture that causal connection as a kind of arrow between the input and the output. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to one way of thinking about uh, causation, it always goes from events to events. Uh, or events and states of mind, in the case of human beings, to events. And the output events that we usually talk about in the free will literature are decisions, like deciding to go left. And uh, the input events on a certain view would be things like uh, what you hope is true, what you believe is true, what you want, and your values, and things like that. Now, the agent causationist says, no, that, that's not the way it goes. The output events are decisions, or sometimes they say intentions in different things. Sometimes actions, sometimes consequences of actions. But the crucial thing is that the input thing is the agent as a whole, say the whole human being. Hmm. And they, they're thinking that the whole human being, if it causes, let's say, the decision, uh, is in control, in complete control, um, no worries about free will. I really have a hard time with that one. But another, well, let's go with another possibility I I also set aside. It's that uh, decisions, if they're free, are uncaused. Mm. And I really have a hard time making sense of that. But there is also what's called event causal libertarianism. And there the causes are states of mind, beliefs, desires, uh, or their neural realizers. You can be open-minded about that. And that's the sort of libertarian view I would accept if 
I were a libertarian. Hmm. Um, I'll go on about that in a minute, but I can also say I'm not a libertarian for two different reasons. One, I haven't been persuaded by any of the arguments for incompatibilism. Um, so I don't see that I should be accepting that necessary condition of libertarianism. And two, we just don't have good reason to believe, good evidence, that the brain works indeterministically in the way it would need to work uh, for event causal libertarianism to be true. We don't have evidence that it doesn't work that way either. It might, uh, and, it, and it might not. Um, okay, so that's why I'm not really a libertarian. But if I were, I'd go for the event causal one. Now, what's the main obstacle there? It's uh, what I call the problem of present luck. If you use the roulette wheel model and you think about it, and now let's make it something serious. So it's not going left or going right. It's, uh, I don't know, cheating or not cheating. Um, what example do I want to use? Maybe this one. I use this one a lot. So there's this guy, Bob, and he lives in a town where people bet on just about everything. And uh, he's agreed to toss a coin at noon uh, to start a football match. And as noon approaches, a gambler comes up to Bob and says, hey, you know, if you can just pretend to be fumbling for that coin in your pocket for a couple of minutes and toss it at 12.02, I'll give you 50 bucks. And so Bob is thinking, well, you know, what should I do? Should I do what I promised to do, toss it at noon? Or should I go for the 50 bucks? And uh, let's do it with the roulette wheel. The little wheel starts spinning in his head, the ball bounces around, and what he decides at noon is to cheat. So then in another possible world, in this picture of things, everything being the same right up until then, uh, he decides to do the honest thing and, and not to cheat. So now we compare Bob in these two worlds and we think maybe, uh, well, isn't it just a matter of luck that he chose the bad thing rather than choosing the good thing? And if it was just a matter of luck, isn't he off the hook? Shouldn't we see him as being off the hook? Mm -hmm. But if he's off the hook, then he didn't do it freely, because if he did it freely, he'd be on the hook. So that's that's a big worry about event causal libertarianism. And um, I do offer a solution to it. And I can go into that now if that seems appropriate to you. Let's let's take a pause there. I'll maybe just we can discuss this at like a high level. But um, I mean, I find the either or case that you cover in the book to say, well, look, either it's a chain of causes or it's luck. But at no point does something that would really hang moral responsibility on it really come into play. I find that, I think, a bit more plausible than you do. Um, and I think my thinking there would be we're in a domain at which we don't really have full knowledge, like there's some neurobiology that sort of speaks to this and so on, but I don't think anyone would say it's like completely conclusive, right? And you say at the end, well, look, yeah, you can't con confidently say we can rule out something like libertarian free will. Equally, though, I don't think, I think it would be very overconfident to say, based on science or whatever, we definitely have to rule it in. And so to my mind, I would put that in a very analogous camp to the sorts of arguments people might make about religion or God and to say, yeah, you can't prove there's not a God. Almost every atheist would grant that. But in the absence of sort of positive evidence, you'd probably put a fairly low probability on it. And I think my thinking about morality, which is what more of this turns on for me, isn't to say this starting point or that starting point is absolutely 100% a priori de facto correct. It's to say how much how much credence do I really give that say suffering is bad? I'd, I'd say a reasonable amount. And you know you're invited to sort of just put your hand on a hot stove if you doubt it. How much credence do I give to hanging 
real and people do put real normative weight on it to something like libertarian free will probably not much can i prove it's not there no am i am i really incorporating that into my thinking a lot only in so far as i know a lot of other people do does that make sense as like how how i sort of think about the questions that you've just raised yeah yeah it definitely does um it definitely does you know that's part of the reason that i do have these two views for my audiences in, in all of my books on free will um so you sound like you know if you were to go pro free will uh you would go compatibilist and i say yeah okay that's that's good and here's my compatibilist view mm. and i set it out um but as you recognize a lot of people think uh not a lot of philosophers really but just lay folk mm. uh think that uh compatibilism just isn't good enough and you need you know something fancier and my event causal libertarianism is the least fancy of the of the fancy options. So go ahead. I, I think it is precisely well, if we're going to turn to compatibilism, that um, difference in what philosophers tend to believe about free will and what, as you say, lay people tend to believe in it. Now, the fact of a difference isn't itself a hugely solid argument but it is maybe something of a cause for unease in that let me let me let me how, how to put this in that there so there does seem to be something a little discursively evasive and i'm not saying that's the in, the, the intent or like even the outcome but in defending something where you have just quite a different conception of it than the average person walking around on the street does. So um, by analogy, I used religion as an analogy past, last time. By analogy, if I'm discussing God with a sophisticated theologian, um, Dale Martin made these exact arguments to me recently, and I said, I just don't see much positive evidence for a creative force in the universe that directly intervenes and answers prayers and has a personality. You'd, you'd just be a very different universe, right? And Dale Martin says, well, okay, I grant all of that. But to me, when I say God, I more mean the fact that I find the universe meaningful and I have love for my fellow hum human beings and so on and so forth, right? To which I say, fine, I have <laughs> nothing against that. But it seems to me, even if not intentionally, a little bit evasive or misleading to use the word God there, given the fact that to most people who use the word God, they really do mean the intervening being. And yeah, according to that conception of God, yeah, maybe I believe in God. It just sort of feels like why, why use that word, given that that word does not mean that thing to most people most of the time by analogy you see where i'm going right yeah philosophers will say oh free will this free will that moral responsibility and you push them on it and you're like so do you really hold some sort of libertarian conception they're like no of course not what i mean is <laughs> what i mean is xyz things that any common sense person could sign up to and that's all fine. And I'm like, well, OK, if that's what you mean by free will, I believe in free will. So right, that is a real thing. But that's not what most people think they mean. Most people really and it's I don't think they have a conscious theory about it, but implicit in their language is that there really is a there there. And there really is something that's getting into the chain of causality that you can hang very heavy moral hooks on. Um, so that doesn't mean that compatibilism is wrong. It does just sort of mean I squinted it a little. I think it, I think once you try and bring it into the real world, it feels a little misleading at times. That's my concern with compatibilism. OK, I see. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, as you know, there is a body of experimental philosophy literature on whether lay folk are compatibilists or incompatibilists. Mm -hmm. And in some of the studies, you know, the uh, answers they give to the simple questions are uh, in line with compatibilism. Mm -hmm. And in some of the studies, they seem to go the other way. So that is uh, an area that's still being worked on. 
it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Um, sometimes, you know, the worse the behavior is in the stories that the lay folk are presented with, uh, the more inclined they are to give compatibilist answers because you know, they really want to blame the guy for burning his wife and kids to death. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's unfair to, to tell stories like that. But even in down-to-earth stories, sometimes uh, people tend to go in the compatibilist direction. I've done a little experimental philosophy myself, but not about compatibilism versus incompatibilism about whether lay folk think that free will depends on metaphysically uh, exotic stuff like souls. Mm. And, uh, you know, you might think off the top of your head, oh, they probably do. Mm. Uh, Maybe especially in the U.S. or especially in the southeastern U.S. and, you know, some other places because um, they tend to be quite religious. But in my studies, the evidence went the other way. And it was done in the southeast, which is the U.S., which is religious. Um, most people thought that free will didn't depend on souls. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting too. Even though most of those people probably do believe in souls, it's just they think you know you don't need them uh, to have free will. Um, and I'm not sure that compatibilist is all that far out of touch with ordinary thinking about free will. I think that one's still up up for grabs, and we'll see how the experimental philosophy literature goes. So I don't think um, compatibilism is related to folk conceptions of free will as uh, the really watered down view of God is to folk conceptions of God. Um, I mean, I think the God analog is just, uh, uh, it's like a highlighter because I think that case really is a clear case of what's perhaps a much more subtle case in the the compatibilist version to 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 push back a bit i completely agree that when you sort of try and do surveys or experiments or whatever what you get out of people isn't coherent per se or coherent according to our definitions of coherence as 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 philosophers another one is um are people deontologists consequentialists or virtue ethicists and the answer seems to be it kind of depends on the circumstance and the scenario you know like if you ask people about thing a you'll often get a very consequentialist response but if you ask them about thing b you'll often get a very virtue ethicist, ethic, whatever, response. And I think something like that's got to be true for how we think about free will and moral responsibility. And I think maybe in some ways this is just our, like, conception of coherence as philosophers that has to bend a little, in that we think we have these overarching theories and then we bring them to the real world and analyse them. Whereas I think what it seems like most people do most of the time is they kind of just like have this toolkit, subconscious toolkit. They encounter a scenario, they rummage around. You know, this seems like this seems like a situation for consequentialism, they might say, or this seems like a, a situation for compatibilism. Or, you know, now we've got this person who had a nice upbringing, really did have, have every chance in life, and still brutally murdered his life, his <laughs> wife. This seems like a situation where I want to get the big clunky libertarian wrench out and hit him over the head with it, <laughs> right? So when I say it's 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 compatibilism sits uneasily with what most people believe, I don't mean they're going around being systematic libertarians. I mean they have in their toolbox this big clunky wrench that they will get out on certain occasions and hit people over the head with. Um and that can be quite bad. I think we make our, our worst moral and policy decisions when we make them from a place of retribution. That was quite long, but that would be sort of my counter to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think there's a lot to that too. Um, it's not as though most lay folk have uh, a consistent view that they apply to all cases. Uh, I think they use heuristics. Um, but yeah, in some cases, uh, they seem to be going for a compatibilist view, in other cases, incompatibilist. Um, by the way, one thing I use to push at least undergrads mm. toward compatibilism, just to 
sort of push them both ways, you know, over time, is uh, a thought experiment that I talk about in this book. It's uh, it goes back to Harry Frankfurt. So there's this. Uh, it's a 1969 paper by Harry Frankfurt. It still gets a lot of attention. Um, so there's this principle that you might think is true. Some people might think is true. Uh, you're morally responsible for doing A only if you could have done otherwise than A. Mm-hmm. Or you freely did A only if you could have done otherwise than A. And that you can think of as the principle of alternative possibilities. And Frankfurt had a counterexample to it. Um, I'll give a slightly different one, but it really is uh, in that mold of things. So uh, imagine that there's a uh, very powerful mind-reading guy on the scene who can tell what people are about to decide and can also interfere and make them decide what he wants them to decide. Mm-hmm. And um, I forget what I call this guy in the book. <laughs> I keep changing the names. We'll call him Harry. And so um, Harry is a guy who sometimes steals cars. And he's thinking about, uh, no, let's not do that one, prank. So Harry's a guy who likes to play pranks on people. And he's thinking about playing a prank on me. And the prank would be when I'm out of my office, get my car keys, uh, take my car and drive it to another parking lot and keep the keys. That's his prank. And he's thinking about doing it. And it turns out the the fancy potential mind controlling guy wants him to decide to do that at a precise time at noon. And he's watching him and he sees, oh, he's going to decide it on his own. So he leaves him alone. So at noon, uh, Harry decides to play the prank on me and he gets my keys and so on. Um, And his brain works indeterministically. Uh, the way libertarians like. Mm. So he decides it on his own. Uh, the fancy guy doesn't interfere. Um, okay, so did he decide freely to steal my car? And is he morally responsible for stealing my car? If you think yes, then it looks like you're thinking, well, he's morally responsible for it and he does it freely, even though he couldn't have done otherwise than decide at noon to steal my car. Because either he was going to decide it on his own or he was going to decide it because the fancy guy made him decide it. Uh, That's the case. And then um, to reinforce it, so we could do this next. Take the fancy potential manipulator out of the story and just run the story without him. And we think, well, of course he's morally responsible for deciding at noon to steal my car. And of course he decides freely at noon to steal it because he decides on the basis of his own thinking. Um, and then uh, you could imagine that you are told that I'm told, oh, um, you know, Harry, I mean, the fancy guy was prepared to make Harry decide that if he didn't decide it on his own. Am I going to think, oh, he's off the hook then? No, I'm still going to be really upset because I thought my car was stolen and I called the police and they wasted a lot of time and and so on. Um, so that kind of thought experiment tends to move people. And so now they're thinking, oh, you don't need to be able to do otherwise in order to do a thing freely or to be morally responsible for it. Um, And that's the main motivation it may seem uh, for libertarianism and for incompatibilism in general. And so you might think, oh, so compatibilism isn't so bad. It seems to be in line with my view of things. that's that's a line that students anyway are very receptive to and i think lay folk are too there have been some studies done but so long ago i don't remember what the results were um i think very very clearly we have an intuition that there's a difference between causes that are agent directed and causes that aren't. So let's just say it is a determinist universe. And in one case, Harry does this because of shit that's just going on in his brain. But in another, he does it because of the mind control guy. I think there's an intuition that those are different cases, even if they end with Harry doing the same thing, right? And then you can go, right? I wonder 
though like i think there's that intuition that, that there's some there's some ethically salient difference there right but then you can start putting things in the middle of it which is like what if the thing that made him decide wasn't the mind control guy but it wasn't just him either what if it was a brain tumor you know then i think that kind of splits the difference on our intuition so we kind of think well you know there wasn't someone forcing him to do it but on the other hand if he only did it because there was a brain tumor that released a certain chemical and if you could have cut that tumor out he wouldn't have done it that sort of doesn't feel like something we can hold him responsible for but then you you sort of I guess this is the free will skeptic view. You just push it all the way down and you say, well, what are, what do you have in your head at the end of the day that's really morally distinct from a brain tumour? It's all just organic matter doing its stuff. Why is that particular bit of organic matter making you feel like you're not responsible for it, but just normal synapses are? So I think, yeah, if you've got mind control versus just doing it, I agree there's a strong intuition that those are different. But I wonder if you can start to plug things in the middle to make it feel like more of a spectrum. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and you can. Yeah, so then you get into the manipulation literature. Uh, I wrote a book called Manipulated Agents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I love these cases, actually. They're, they're very instructive. Um, yeah, so compare the intentional agent case where the fancy guy, you know, makes Harry mm -hmm. decide a certain way. And we think, oh, the, the fancy guy did it in that case, so Harry's off the hook. But if the fancy guy is just prepared to do it and doesn't, and Harry does it on his own, we say, yeah, he's responsible, he did it freely. So what if it's a brain tumor that does it? Now, one question is, is the brain tumor such that uh, Harry is not here. Yeah, it was Harry this time. That Harry is forced uh, to make the decision he makes. Um, if so, then Harry's off the hook. If the brain tumor doesn't force him to do it, but just raises the probability pretty high that he'll do it, and he could have done otherwise, then we're not so sure whether he's off the hook or not. So it could be, you know, that the moral of all this is that really it's the decisions being, we'll call it forced, compelled, um, that renders it unfree. And if it's not compelled, then at least we're in the ballpark of a, of a free decision. We have to see what else is needed. Um, yeah, so I have manipulation stories in which there's compulsion, and I say the guy's off the hook. But there are also manipulation cases where you just boost the probability that a person will do a certain thing by a bit. Like um, subliminal, subliminal advertising. Mm. Uh, they did studies on that years ago. And it turns out they raised the probability that you'll buy the popcorn or the Coke or whatever by about 10%. So has the control been taken out of the agent's hands in those cases? No, you know, he can still resist. It's just that it's a little harder to resist the urge if he thinks he should. Um, yeah, so the tumor, I think of the tumor stuff in the same way. So you could think of like tiny tumors that boost probabilities of decisions by 10% and overwhelming tumors that uh, force a decision. I, I, mean, I think we clearly say the tumor really forces it. I think people feel that then you're off the hook, right? But like, say the tumor just releases a chemical in your brain that makes you more suggestible, which apparently there are chemicals that do that, then you might want to hang on to a bit of moral responsibility because there might just be that chemical in your brain anyway, without the tumor, right? Mm -hmm. Let me give you another option here, though, um, for accounting for this. I think all of this shows a pretty strong intuition that at a minimum, if you're forced, we don't think you're free. Or we, more, more, more precisely, if you're forced, we don't think it's appropriate to put moral responsibility on you. 
but to the degree that there is some choice, even if that choice is predetermined, then we think that there is. So often with these things, I sort of wonder if what we're doing is kind of retrofitting a sort of just consequentialism in that we humans have sort of learned a series of moral intuitions to like not get hurt, basically. And then we go back and we apply reasons to them. But it is actually just a sort of straightforward um some mixture of pragmatism and consequentialism in so to to wit if i'm applying a law or a punishment to people or a positive moral incentive i really sort of want to restrict that to stuff where i can influence their behavior if i just lock someone in a prison cell and then say I'm going to punish you for every day you don't go out and do community work. They say, well, I can't. I'm in the cell. That that law doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so to wit, that sort of big level, you know, consequential pragmatism, whatever, we sort of only really want to try and apply incentives to people for things that are the, the, those incentives might change their behavior right that then just follows through that that becomes an intuition we have that then follows through down to these examples of you know if the match if the brain guy made you do it you're not responsible if the tumor made you do it you're not responsible but if you just chose to do it even if that choice was predetermined then you are responsible and i guess that's where i'm different from most philosophers in that most philosophers see consequentialists as trying to go back and like reinflate the balloon and make common sense morality make sense from their perspective. I almost wonder if it's the reverse. We have intuitions that have kind of come up from us making sense of the world in a consequentialist pragmatic way. And then we apply all this other rhetoric to them. I'll stop there. If that, did that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That That is, is really plausible, I think. Um, now, you know, it is kind of weird. I, I write about moral responsibility, but I don't have any particular uh, ethical view. Mm. Um, so how am I able to do all this uh, without having a, a view in ethics? Somehow I, I do it. Mm. So I'm, I'm thinking um, moral views probably in most cases don't dictate how people think about uh, free will and moral responsibility. Whereas I think the way you're thinking about it is that it's the, the moral views that are driving the views about free will and moral responsibility, <clears throat> at least you know for, for you and maybe other people too. And I've had friends in ethics who tell me, yeah, that's the way it is really. You know, you come up with your ethical view and then that tells you what to think about free will and moral responsibility. Um, and I'm just not in a position to do that test on myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Did I miss something in what you said that I should be responding to? No, that sounds right. There's a challenge to me there, though, right, in that you're quite right. I am. I wouldn't say complete. I wouldn't say my views on this area are completely determined by ethical priors, but they are definitely informed by them, right? And I mean, so that's what I do: is um, political philosophy, or at least pretend to do it on the internet, right? Um, and a lot of the ways we talk about moral responsibility do have quite a strong political valence to me, yeah. Right? And so I kind of can't help but like think to, to take a silly example to think about libertarian conceptions of free will in light of political libertarianism, say, right, even though they're by far from one for one correlates. Um, I think there's another way in which I do, which is to some degree, I'm not only asking the question of is this absolutely true in a foundational sense? to me something like compatibilist free will is it true is to some degree almost missing the point in that it is a description of the world it's internally coherent as it goes i guess the question for me is not only is it true and is it coherent is is it useful yeah you know, is that a way of describing the world that 
gets us where we want to go? Is it when people think this way, do they make more moral or less moral decisions? Now, the counter argument to me there is, ah, hang on, Toby, you've just, your, 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 your reasoning's going in a circle there. You're evaluating your moral foundations by if they produce moral results. But then where do those, you say, if they produce good results, where do those good results come from? What makes them good in virtue of what? Isn't this just one big tautology? That's the, that's the challenge. But that is a question I ask of stuff like this. And you might, you might challenge me just to say it's the wrong question. Um, it is a question I ask of like, does thinking in this way help people or hurt them? Does it help them make better or worse decisions? I do evaluate it through that lens, absolutely. Yeah, I see. No, that's that's really good. Um, uh, sometimes I do, you know, conceptual analysis. And then one of my thoughts usually is, okay, there's this way of conceiving of X and there's that way. And which of those two ways is more useful? That's one question I always ask myself. And for me, the utility is often a matter of just uh, explanatory power. Mm. Like which one is going to let me explain more stuff in philosophy of action or whatever. But if I can do that just because of my orientation on things, then certainly an ethicist can do the same thing uh, on various concepts. So which would be more useful for real people in the real world? A nice compatibilist conception of free will or moral responsibility uh, or a libertarian one? I think that's a good and important question. Um, it doesn't get a lot of attention, I think, in the free will literature, but I also think it should. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not as though, you know, we should be Platonists and there, there's one concept and it's out there in the world and you just have to latch on to it. And <clears throat> when you go that far, then you're, you're thinking, uh, well, how do we evaluate competing conceptions of the same thing, apparently the same thing? And their utility seems to be an important uh, consideration. Yeah, because for a political philosopher, this isn't such a strange question at all. So if you take, if you just switch a word and take it from free will to just freedom, political freedom, it would be quite normal for political philosophers to sort of say, oh, we have a lib libertarian, a liberal conception of freedom, a republican conception of freedom. What work are they doing in the world? You know, mm -hmm. that's a completely run of the mill question for political philosophy or political theory. I guess a question for you then is, do you do you not then have much? Do you? not have either a bias or a belief for like which you would like to see catch on so to speak i mean you're you're more of a you're you're like a sort of pro free will in general but not a sectarian if i understand you um do you sort of what do you do you do your work independent of or at least attempting to be independent of questions about like because I think some people really see themselves as like warriors for a cause and like I am a crusader for compatibilism and I want to convert the world to one true faith. Uh, <laughs> do, 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 do you lack that entirely? Yeah, I, I think I do. Right. Uh, I'm not a crusader for compatibilism. I'm not a crusader for libertarianism. I guess if I'm a crusader for anything, it's uh, for the thesis that scientific arguments for the non-existence of free will are unsuccessful. And mm. I really mean mainly the neuroscience-based arguments, but that's not what this book is about. One chapter of the book is, but just one. Mm. Uh, that I think is important. Um, so over the years, I've had lots of emails from people who are really depressed by the news that scientists have shown that there's no free will. And sometimes, I mean, these people are on the verge of a, a breakdown and I have to think about what to do and how to handle it. Um, but despite all the press saying that scientists have shown this, they haven't. And um, they, they haven't even shown, I mean, they haven't shown that a compatibilist kind of free will doesn't exist, but they haven't even shown it about, say, event causal libertarianism. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where my crusade is. 
And there, I feel happy about crusading that way because I know I'm right. <laughs> but, but I don't see how I could know I was right that compatibilism is true or know I was right that event causal libertarianism is true. But your so your motivator isn't a, is is more negative than positive then so to speak. It's not that I think I've got the right answer and that I need to persuade everyone else of it. It's this specifically I think is the wrong answer or bad arguments. And I feel like people are being taken in by bad arguments or just accepting them uncritically when they shouldn't. It's more that yeah. that gets yeah. you up in the morning, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's that's what really moves me. Um, and, you know, I'll get back to that again pretty soon. So we covered like our that was more just trading off big picture takes about free will. But I think that can be instructive and enjoyable as well. Um what let me ask you this i've given you skeptical concerns what's your pitch for me for free will is it ultimately that i'm i'm kind of reflexively assuming that science has proved determinism when it hasn't and i need to be more open to this um or do you add anything beyond that what am i I think I've given you a sense of how I think about this. Is there something I'm missing in my worldview here? Set, set, set me straight, Professor. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know that you're missing anything. Um, in uh, physics, it's still open whether the universe is deterministic or, or not. Uh, it seems, you know, that the indeterministic uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics are more popular than the deterministic ones. But it's not a closed case either way. There might be hidden variables such that if they were discovered, you know, we'd see that the universe is deterministic. Um, so I, I don't think that you really are thinking that the universe is deterministic and maybe concluding from that that there's no free will. Um, I think that, you know, there are attractions to compatibilism mainly that they don't run into certain problems that different kinds of libertarianism run into. And also compatibilist conceptions can be useful too. Um, with libertarianism, I usually try to talk people out of thinking that it requires something really exotic, like souls or the ability to violate laws of nature, you know, things like that. Um, I just think of it as pretty much a compatibilist kind of view with this deep openness mixed in. And then I try to explain why the openness um, is compatible with free will, doesn't undermine it. Um, yeah, so I guess, well, I don't know. I'm, I, I try not to be pragmatic in my writing, but there is evidence that people who believe in free will, however they're thinking of it, uh, do better than people who don't. You know, they're mm. more successful, they're happier, they have better lives and so on. There is evidence of that. And um, so I, I think it's know, a nice thing to do to, to motivate free will. But I don't want to sound like I'm doing it for that reason. I'm just trying to play it straight. Yeah, you're not you're not into my grubby old consequentialism although i by, by the arguments i've made if that data is out there and robust i it should move me right consistently with what i was saying before yeah. although that said there's evidence that religion helps people lead happier lives they certainly live a bit longer it adds a year or two to your life expectancy <laughs> for some reason that doesn't move me at all apparently i'll just die a year sooner <laughs> but, uh... yeah but uh, maybe your attitude will change as you get old. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, all right, that's coming up on an hour. Um, the book is Free Will, An Opinionated Guide, and I assume this is available online and all good booksellers with OUP. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Professor, thanks so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it.